Hey, my name is Connor Malley, and I'm the founder of SQR Squash Radio. And it turns out I'm a squashpreneur. What does that mean? Basically, an entrepreneur, but in the squash industry. I founded Metro Squash in Chicago. I've been a teaching professional, tried out for Team USA, came nowhere close to making the team. But years later, I did find myself on the business side as director of Team USA. I've ran the US Open while working at US Squash for several years, done consulting for squash clubs and events, even court construction. The list goes on. These days, I'm still deeply involved in squash, especially with my new role with the PSA, the Pro Squash Tour, but trying to expand into other racket sports in lighting, court construction, and strategy. There's some exciting projects I'm working on, and I can't wait to share them. But in the meantime, we hope you're enjoying these squash-focused podcasts our team is helping to put out. We love doing them, and we hope you enjoy them too. What about this? This call is being recorded. Today's guest is Paul Johnson, most widely known as PJ. PJ has been at the top echelon of the sport for over 30 years now. During his playing career, he reached the ranks of world number four, as well as earned gold medals at the Commonwealth Games while playing for England. These days, he juggles a full plate, balancing his elite players he coaches and mentors, while being a lead commentator for the Pro Tour Squash TV, and most recently added being a co-host of the podcast, The Breakdown, that I do with him alongside Bill Buckingham. So this episode was really fun to get to know my fellow co-host a little bit more. In this episode, we dive into PJ's coaching career and learn more about how he approaches the sport, as well as some of his early experiences of being exposed to the elite squash world in the United States. We also rewind the clock to go back to an early pivotal moment in his squash career, as well as cover the highlight at the Commonwealth Games. Lastly, we touch on a true passion area for PJ in the world of music. I've known PJ for many years at this point, but it was a pleasure to spend time with him and get to know him a little bit more. A quick thank you to our sponsor, Pro Sport LED, your trusted lighting source for racket sports facilities like squash, tennis, pickleball, or padel. Because of its advanced LED lighting technology, these lights are a perfect solution for anyone building a new facility, but they can easily be retrofitted into existing courts. If you're looking for lights or know anyone that is, please go ahead and connect us at squashradio at gmail.com. That's squashradio at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope you enjoyed the show. Hey there, Squash fans. Welcome back to another episode of Squash Radio. I'm your host, Connor Malley, and I couldn't be more excited to have this guest on today because we've been actually working at it for a little bit, and I needed a little bit of time with him to do a one-on-one interview, so I'm glad that he agreed to come on the show. And a quick intro for him, this is Paul Johnson, otherwise known as PJ, who is former world number four, one of the leading coaches in the world, lead commentator on Squash TV, and most recently has added co-host of The Breakdown with myself and Bill Buckingham. So if Bill was asking which is most important to you, what would your answer be? Oh, it's obviously it's broadcasting with you guys. I mean, that's the, it is the highlight of my week. As soon as I get the email coming through and we've got our topics to, to be discussed, I get a little excited, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> well, I, I was just thinking uh, as I was getting ready for this interview, we could actually call that show uh, Two and a Half Squash Players 
where I think Bill and I would share the one and you're the one and a half. <laughs> okay. That's a fair breakdown. That's a fair breakdown. I'll, I'll be happy with that. Uh, so, thanks for having well, me on the show, though. I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to this one. It's been a long time coming, but I'm pretty excited about it. Yeah, I'm excited to uh, kind of put the spotlight on you. <laughs> and uh, we have a lot of different topics we want to take a, a peek through in your life. And we're going to start off with the lens right now that you're probably um, d- doing most in your day-to-day work, which is the role of coaching. Sure. Right? And yeah. what's interesting is I feel like this has probably given you a whole new lens on the game itself, but Absolutely. also into people. And yeah. so there's a little way we'll, we'll dive on that. But what I thought might be helpful is if we talk about, let's give a quick scenario that you're about to start working with a new client, and I'm just going to put this, I know you tend to work more in the junior realm, but for this hypothetical, let's say it's someone in their 30s or 40s that you're about to start working with coming into the game. And, you know, they're really keen on developing as a player. But this is like, how would you to start mapping them out, mapping it out to improving their game? Oh, that's a very tough Opening question there, Colin. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it doesn't have to be. It will no, be interactive. No, I'm, I'm, in actual fact, what's I've been coaching now for just a bit of a quick background. I've been coaching now for twenty years. It was a role that I found myself in uh, more by luck than anything else, or bad luck, whatever way you look at it. My career came to an end in two thousand and two through uh, herniated uh, L four and L five. That took me out of competitive play. And I may have mentioned this before, that all the time I was a professional player, one of the last things on my radar would have been going into the coaching field. And when that injury happened in August of 2002, overnight my career, it completely was turned on its head and I had no idea what area or what field I was going to look to go into. And just as an easy option... I actually went into the coaching field, just coaching at a local club down the road from where I was living at the time in South London. And because of my background as a player and the people I'd worked with throughout my career, I instantly found uh, a tremendous amount of satisfaction with it in in a very kind of unique way that I wasn't expecting. And it, it was very satisfying because as soon as I got on court and I saw these players starting to improve and saw their levels get better, their knowledge of the game increasing, that also stimulated me in a very sort of strange kind of way. How would you describe your style of coaching? So when I first came, that's an interesting point as well. When I first came over in 2003, my concept of coaching was very different because my lessons in the UK, the players or the students would come in for their one lesson a week and then they'd disappear and I'd come back and I'd see them the following week. So I had actually very little knowledge of them as a person and and, and their their day-to-day kind of runnings or or how they kind of applied their their, their squash. So when I came to the US, I went straight into more of a private coaching system up on this Northeast coast, as you're well aware, there's some... Uh, a lot of a lot of the goals for these kids are trying to get their kids into the Ivy League schools, and it really needed that person. They wanted that personal touch. Whereas in the UK, as I said, they would come in, they do the forty five minutes, and then they would leave. As soon as I came over here and started work, I was actually in Greenwich, Connecticut, to start with. As soon as I turned up, it was made very clear to me. It's, you know, obviously financially, it was very re- rewarding, but your role as a coach wasn't 
just to feed balls and hit balls. You were the psychologist, the sports psychologist, the role model. You would organize their tournaments. You would look at their technique, their tactics. So you actually took over the whole kind of project, as you'd say. So you were far more than just a coach. You were much more of a of a, a role model and a, and a much bigger influence from a development standpoint, as opposed to in the UK, you would literally just feed squash balls. So it, it, that was very eye-opening for me early on. And that was where I got my best work done in more of a, a personal one-to-one situation as opposed to being in a, a massive group. When you came into that role, it's clear that you had such a strong skill set and such a strong aptitude to start there. But like in any new role, there's always going to be skill gaps. So in the area where you were trying to improve, if you were kind of talking back to yourself 10, maybe 15 years ago, and you could pass back like, hey, you should really go read this book or try and shadow this person. What piece of advice would you give yourself rewinding the clock 10 or 15 years to improve in that area? Probably for me, it would have been a bit more, obviously, hindsight and because I've had a relatively successful career as a coach, I would have probably tried to instill a little bit more confidence and self-belief in myself as a coach at the time. It was relatively new to me. So I think there was an element of doubt that at times, if players, their path was a slow progress, you would question your methods or your theories because you didn't have any evidence that what you were teaching was working. And I would have probably tended to be a little bit more introverted in in that department and not necessarily spoken up all the time or or always given an honest opinion I would have sat back and and probably kept quiet and if if I was to look back on that period I should have been more confident in my ability and my knowledge and and put that out there sooner you know I'm glad you brought that up because I think what I'm starting to notice more and more is that I don't want to call it imposter syndrome but just just to give it sort of a label that this is more common than not that we were put into roles sometimes that we want or we think we can do and then we're in this situation and we're experiencing those challenges and to your point I certainly experienced that myself even as a coach first time I was yeah. like, <laughs> you know you know this but it's like I just didn't have the number of hours behind yeah. it and I think the hours gives you that confidence so 12 years on tour, Connor, and it was a similar story with my playing career, to be honest, for the first six, seven years when I was scrapping it out and trying to make my way up to the the top of the game. There was a lot of doubt in there because you hadn't had that success at that time. So that that question always looms over you is, am I capable? Can I actually do it? Can I get there? And, And that was similar when I moved over to my coaching. The confidence I had as a player towards the, you know, the tail end of, of my playing days was very high I, because I knew that I'd achieved certain things in the game that I'd set out to do. And I felt there was a sense of belonging amongst the best players in the world at that time. So I'd almost achieved those goals. So then I move into a new role as a coach with very little experience from a coaching perspective. And it wasn't until you you get a couple of years into the game and you see that certain players have moved on and they've achieved their goals and their potentials and ultimately ended up in some of the schools that they're looking to get into where you can look back and then sort of reflect on that and see the the importance and the relevance and the input that you've had has made a, a big difference to to the outcome of the player. Yeah. 
I, I would like to go back to a little bit because I'd like to pull back the curtains for some of the guests here and not all of them have access to uh, a coach of your caliber. And so going back to the example, of, let's say there's this player that you're first getting to work with. What's the assessment look like? How are you doing that? And then I guess what's a prescription that you're at a high level, you're sort of thinking through of how to push their game forward. So yeah. let's talk about the assessment side. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Now that I've been stateside for 18 years and with the knowledge that I've learned that during that time over here, I would feel pretty confident in saying I've got a relatively good eye to spot some ability and talent in a player. It may not always be obvious at the time, but there'll be certain traits, some body language, some certain things that the players will do where you can just, you may just need one or two little things that you'll see where you think to yourself, if that's harnessed in the right environment and the right way, we could actually produce and make a, a decent player of, of this person, you know, male or female. And I now have a luxury of only working with players where I, I do see that the ability. And that's why I've, from a selfish standpoint, I've always preferred the more pr private and personal coaching route. I just didn't see myself suited well to a job in, say, a country club or a private club where the coaches are subjected to you know, pretty much any player that walks through the door and they have to just work with that player regardless of the ability and the standard. So I'm now in a situation where I can... And they don't necessarily have to, have to start off as good players, but you, you look for that little bit of ability and then you'll see the potential and the talent in there. And then I would work from that point onwards. What's a talent that you've, because you mentioned that in your assessment, it's like, I have to see some sort of talent. What is one that you yeah. more recently sort of thought about that you didn't think of initially? Probably work ethic. That's something that I've discovered over, <laughs> when I look back to certain players that have ended up and for me, coming to the US, my, my bar was set primarily at Ivy League school level. Now, academically, the kids have to be very bright, but you're looking to ultimately get the players to maybe within the top five, top 10 in, the, in their respected age groups to give them a, a chance of getting into these top schools. And if I was to look at all of the players that have managed to do that, and there's, I'm up to, actually, I'm up to, I had a quick count up before we came on the show. I'm up to 20 now, which is, which I'm uh, really, really pleased with. But if you look at those players when they first started out, from a talent standpoint, Connor, it was extremely varied. And there was, of the 12 players, I'll probably say there are four, maybe five, who stood out as what you would call uh, an extreme talent. The other 15 achieved what they achieved through really hard work and working specifically on the right areas. And that for me has probably been the biggest eye opener. It's not talent will get you so far as a player. And unless those players are willing to put the hard work in and obviously the right kind of work, that talent probably won't reach its potential. So if, if that's sort of a little bit on the assessment side, let's talk about sort of the prescription or what you guys do. What have you found as some of the areas of work that sort of get disproportionate results for you and your player? As far as, I mean, you mean as far as areas of players' games that don't get worked on enough or? I, just meaning that sometimes there's like, well, in any one thing, like 
with any one player. You're probably doing multiple things. You got to work on nutrition. You got to work on yep. uh, your sleep habits. You got to work on your technique, all that. But I'm curious. So from a prescription point of view, is there anything that you have found that is like across the board that brings disproportionate results to all the players you worked with? Yeah, for, for, for me personally, I would say my forte would be more of a, a technician when it comes to swing and movement and the correlation between the two. There needs to be a certain element of, or quite a heavy element of, of technical work that needs to go into the players. Then after that, I would say the most important part for any development of any player is looking to implement those technical points into match play. Yeah. Uh, one of the big problems, if you want to call it that, that I see over here in the US, a lot of these juniors are massively coached, very heavily coached, but they're underplayed. If you want to use an example, take Egypt. They're, they're dominating the men's and the women's game. And believe it or not, if you go out to Egypt, a lot of the players there are not necessarily technically or tactically coached. What they do is play an obscene amount of matches. And that's where they just they learn and figure out a way to play the game. So I think if you can combine that match play aspect and, and area with the, the technical input of learning how to hit the ball into a certain area and, and why a ball reacts a certain way, improve their ball control, and then look to put that under pressure in a match. That, for me, is a pretty much well-rounded uh, formula that's pretty successful. One of the missing parts is, is enough match play. Is that something you try and prescribe more for your players? Absolutely, yeah. If, if you speak to any of the players that I've worked with, if if you were to break it up into a weekly schedule, kind of, and the kids were on court four to five times a week, I'd probably stick two technical sessions in there. One session where the kids are doing drills or routines or in a in a clinic and group environment, and the other two days I'd have them playing matches. Is it because that's the ultimate goal? They need to learn to play. You need to put your little bits, lay your foundations with your technique and your movement and then get your matches in. And then it's what they do within those matches, how the players can still develop certain areas. I may try and get the players or encourage the players, should I say, even if they only play three games, try to play them at such an intensity and such a pace that that, that then works on your the physical aspects of the game. And, that, and then they get used to playing the game. It's, it's a good environment for them to put things into practice that they're going to ultimately end up doing during tournament play. But for me, it's, it's the most underused part of coaching and what a lot of the players in America do. I've seen, you, you just need to walk around the tournaments now and you see some of these kids, technically, they look fantastic in the warm-up. They, you know, they look a million dollars, you know, chipping the ball up and down the wall and cross-court. And then the moment the game starts, they're like a deer in headlights just because they've not been exposed to enough matches. What do you think, given that you highlighted Egypt has a different sort of ratio of 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 match play. What do you think that match play ratio looks like in Egypt? 95%. Yeah. I, I remember I went out to Egypt in 2006 with David P. I was an assistant coach for the World Junior team, the England boys. We ended up winning that event, actually, uh, bizarrely enough, against all odds. And they had some squads that were taking place at the time. <clears throat> it was at Cairo Stadium, and I think they've got about nine, ten courts. And there was 
three players on each court. They were playing king of the court. One player would stand at the back. The other two would be playing rallies. And then they would sort of, after half an hour, 20 minutes, they would rotate. But every now and again, the head coach would come on, take a player off from the court and then send him down to one of the main coaches that was possibly just working on forehand drops or forehand volley drops all day. But the main kind of theory behind the, the session was all match play. And if they felt a certain player needed a certain aspect of his game to be worked on, you know, at that particular time, they literally dropped him off court, put him on court for 10, 15 minutes with the feeder or the other coach, and then throw him back in to play matches again. And I just thought that was a really, just a cool, unique, not instead of spending an hour, 45 minutes grooming that particular part of the game, it was quick fix, get back out there and go and practice it. Go and put it back into your match play to see how it holds up. Going back to you as one of the leading coaches in the world, there's an element that, and you said this offline, that you're a true student of the game, Yeah. right? And I'm curious, how do you try and stay sharp? How do you keep your coaching skills sharp? And I know it's a tool to keep sharp because mm. when I stopped coaching, oh man, is it dull. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh yeah, it doesn't take long. It doesn't take Yeah, long. it doesn't yeah. take long. So yeah. I'm curious, what do you do to try and keep yourself sharp? I find it pretty easy, if I'm honest. You go back to being a student of the game. I was so fortunate to work with, in my opinion, one of the best coaches in the world. He's in the Coaches Hall of Fame. It's a guy called David Pearson. He's worked with more world number ones and world champions than any other coach that's out there. He's taken some, you want to talk about working with ability, going back to one of your previous questions. I remember watching Nick Matthews as a 16 year old and Connery could not hit the, all he could do was literally just chip the ball high and soft down the backhand side wall. And then he had this massive helicopter swing on the forehand. And if somebody would have come along and said, that's Nick Matthew at 16 years of age, by the time he's 28, he's going to have won three world championships, four British Opens, goodness knows how many national titles. Yeah, I mean, you would have laughed in their face. So for, for David Pearson and I, we used to spend hours, and I mean hours, sitting watching VHS videos of all the great players at the time, your Rodney Martins, your Chris Dittmars, your Jan Shikans, your Hange Khans, and we would sit there just studying and the phrase that I used before is this, this correlation between swing and movement and how they work with all the top players. They work with an element of, of harmony. So I always had an, a natural eye to be looking out for these little subtleties that were taking place in the game when I was a player. Then when I went into the coaching side, I was then to try and I was almost trying to imitate what I learned through David Pearson with my players. Now, I've got the luxury as well with squash TV. So I'm seeing all the transitions and the developments of the game at the pro level, mm. but that eye for the game, it never really goes away. So I'm, I'm also looking for the subtleties that maybe a Farag will bring in or an El Shabagi will, will bring in. And in the ladies game, you've got your Shabinis and trying to look and see what they do, which I feel, as you say, keeps you very sharp because there's no one guaranteed. It's not like one size fits all. All of these players will have their own intricacies and their own specifics, but they're, they're done in a very certain way. So I'm always trying to learn more about why certain players are as good as they are. And that, that keeps the mind sharp and active for sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you obviously have a, a, a front row seat to seeing all that. <laughs> yeah. And I'm curious though, how often will you have 
conversations, even if it's just a sidebar conversation. I remember having a, a sidebar conversation with uh, John White about how he hits his his forehand, right? So are you having, and it was, which is fascinating, by the way, I was like, yeah, I can't do that. Um, the uh, <laughs> not, many, you, not many can, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Are you having conversations with players on the tour about that, about what they're doing? Not, not, so, not so much with the players. I, I never want to get involved. I, I very much keep a back seat and, and respect the players for what, you know, for what they're doing. And I, it's certainly not for me to have any input and say in what they're doing. I do have a lot of conversations still with, with David Pearson. This is one of the things that was so great. And I've been so fortunate where I've known Dave since I was 23 years of age and 25 years later, we're still extremely close. So that player coach relationship has certainly evolved and, and developed into a lifelong friendship, which is awesome. I'm very, very blessed to have that. So David and I will still have conversations about the technical aspect and move, movement aspect. And even though he's not as involved as he used to be, he still studies and he still has an unbelievable knack and an unbelievable eye for the game. Aside from that, if I'm in their company, I may have the odd conversation with Rodney Martin. Rodney Martin's got an absolutely uh, a genius squash brain and technically one of the, the best strikers of a squash ball that's ever played. And his his knowledge, he and I will have a lot of conversations, more about tactics really than technique. And the one other guy that would have a chat or two is Robert Owen. He's the the guy that's doing a lot of work with some good pros at the moment, current British Open champion, Paul Cole's done a few years with Robert Owen. But it's a very small market that that I would discuss with. Also, kind of one of the reasons for that is my coaching style is also pretty unique, as is Rodney's and as as is Robert Owen's. So I'm not sure how much people would understand if if I was to get too drawn into a conversation about my ways of looking at things because I think I can pretty much guarantee it'd be very different from theirs. Sure. You know, one thing I have gotten to know DP over the years tangentially, but one other thing that has struck out to me is his understanding of people was just actually a huge talent of his. I mean, I, I can see clearly the results of what his coaching does for a technical point of view, but it really stuck out to me just how much he understands the psychology of a, of an athlete. You would probably find if you did a study that if you look at a lot of the great coaches, your Belichick's, these kind of guys, your Pep Guardiola's, you look at this from a squash standpoint, your Robert Owens, your Rodney Martins. I think the man management aspect of coaching is equal to what you can actually teach them from like a ball striking standpoint or from a tactical standpoint. Because as I said earlier, there's no one right formula. There is no one size fits all. Where the likes of Robert are brilliant, where Rodney Martin's brilliant, where Davey Pearson's brilliant, those guys don't always try to make them play a certain way. They have to work with the dynamic and the DNA of the players that they're working with at the time. And it's they're always working out, how can I bring the best out of this particular player? Because, you know, what Dan Jensen, for example, needed to work on may have been something different from Stuart Boswell or from Ryan Cuskelly or Laura Mazzaro. What she works on is very different from Nick Matthew. And so, you know, Joel Makin and, and Paul Cole, they both have these areas that are, that are completely separate. But what Robert had and Rodney's got and Dave has got, they've all got this 
kind of knowledge of how to draw out the best of their players. And I think that's a massive skill set uh, in itself. And that would probably be what separates the, the best coaches from just the regular coaches. I would agree. And I think that's probably the distinction that Coach Paul Asante from Trinity has had with his program and being um, successful year over year for so long yeah. is his understanding of people. Well, along those lines, I'm curious, and speaking of an understanding of people, you've had this unique lens into the United States in terms yeah. of you being a, an expat coming over from England and working with just a, a unique cross-section of America. And I'm curious, what were your impressions before you came in and what are your impressions now of sort of the, the just the culture in America? That's another good question. When I first came over, I just assumed the squash world was going to be similar to squashing the UK, and I could not have been further wrong. <laughs> I had absolutely well, no let's, let's let's spell that out. What does that what is that? Okay, I'm just going to give you a quick example. I came from a very working class background myself, and when I finished playing as a pro and went into coaching, I used to travel. I used to cycle a mile and a half down the road to a place called Sparrows Farm Squash Centre, and it was a, it was a college owned facility where they had a gymnasium and a swimming pool and four squash courts so I struck up a deal with the manager there and he offered me it wasn't free court time I had to pay two pounds for every hour court so I had a two pound court fee for every court and then my students would give me 18 it was a 20 pound total fee 18 pounds I used to keep which is what's that 22 dollars maybe no 21 dollars and uh, the rest the rest would go to the club so i've come from that kind of environment i've turned up in uh i was doing some work actually with chris walker at the time i'll just give you a very quick story i get a phone call from the the boss of the family i was working with and they said uh pj we've got a little trip arranged today if you're interested i'll be at the house and i'll pick you up at uh, 10:30 and then we'll go from there. So the uh, the person comes up, picks me up. They drive me off to White Plains Airport, get to the airport. It's sectioned off out onto the runway. And there's this G4 private jet with rope, roped off access up to the stairs. <laughs> get, get, onto, get onto this private jet. And there's four kids on the flight already. And the owner of the jet or the wife of the owner of the jet get whisked off about 40 minutes up to the Hamptons. As we've come, as we've come out of uh, the airport, there's a 16-seater Hummer limousine. And so, okay, everybody gets onto the, onto the Hummer. The, the, the roof's open. The kids have got this music blasting. The, you know, they're all kind of jumping. They're young. The kids are like 12, 13 years of age. They pull up, drive off 25 minutes into this absolutely stunning estate of, of houses, get out, Walk, walk through the kitchen area into the back garden. Nick Bolateri is sitting there in a yellow canary pair of Speedos. Kid you not, suntan, big dark sunglasses, big fat cigar. So and I'm, my mouth's open at this stage. I've got no idea what I've got myself into. 15 minutes later, Nick Bolateri goes in, he gets changed, he comes out in a tracksuit. He says, okay, everybody make your way to the back of the garden. We've got a little exhibition tennis, tennis match going on. There was a chap who used to, he was quite a well-renowned tennis player in the Greenwich area. He said, uh, we've got Bjorn here. He's just going to come out and have a little exhibition match with a young lady that's just made her way over from Russia with a father. They came over with $700 in their pocket 
and she's heading back don't, to the UK. You, don't tell me it's Anna Kornikova. She's heading back to the UK in a few weeks. No, you go play it, Wimbledon. It was Anna? It was not. It was Sharapova. Oh, oh Sharapova. Please put your hands together for Maria Sharapova. And this sprawling oh, little 17-year-old comes out. So anyway, you know, I just can't believe, you know, this is little working class PJs come all the way over. And the next minute he's on a private jet to the Hamptons watching Maria Sharapova play. And from that point on, the, my whole image of squashing the, the, the states had changed. I had no idea that it was anything of that sort of magnitude. Well, I think that highlights the difference. And for anyone who doesn't know Nick Balateri, he's probably one of the most famous, uh, if not the most famous uh, tennis coach in the world. Yeah, it was just uh, so, so bizarre, so bizarre. We're going to take a quick break to hear a word about our sponsor. So, Lee, we want to thank you for being our first sponsor on Squash Radio. And just want to say, you've sponsored other avenues, but squash is always where your heart's at. What does it mean to you to be sponsoring squash? I, I think there's just a, a lot of interesting people in the sports. I've attended junior tournaments, I've been to professional tournaments, and you can always get into some engaging conversations. And I think squash radio is an avenue of bringing those people to the forefront. And I'm sure a lot of people would like to listen to them. And sponsoring this, we're just uh, facilitating that. That was Lee Witham, who is the CEO of Pro Sports LED, the sponsor of this podcast. You probably don't even think about lighting, and neither did we until we started talking to Lee. And now we totally get the problem that Pro Sport LED is fixing. And we know maybe that's not you now, or maybe not you ever. But if you know anyone who might be interested or need to improve their lighting for squash, tennis, soccer, you name it, it would mean a lot to us and our sponsor if you'd put us in touch. You can go to squashradio.com LED or email squashradio at gmail.com. That's squashradio at gmail.com. Thank you again and back to our show. Well, I'd like to kind of rewind the clock a little bit and go back into your career. And the moment I'd like to go back to is that period of time when you, you experience burnout or yeah. what I would say, um, we also burnout and, or you could say a breakdown essentially, but it was interesting. Uh, one of the lines I've heard in the past couple of years is, you know, if there's a, a breakdown, usually that means there's an opportunity for a breakthrough. Uh, you couldn't have put it any better. And that's exactly what happened with me. When I was embarking on my career as a pro, I was 17 years of age, just started really moving up the junior ranks. And I was given an opportunity by a club over in Essex. It's a suburb just outside of London to train with a, a chap called, you may or may not have heard of this guy before. He's, his name's Joe Shaw. He's an Australian guy, very colorful character. You either loved him or loathed him. But what he did was gave me an opportunity and an insight as to just how hard you had to work and how professional you had to be if you pursue any sort of career as a professional. So I'd been working with Joe for about six months. And as I was coming to the tail end of my junior career, we had the World Junior Championships taking place in Paderborn, Germany. And I was in the runnings for the team. I was, I was ranked number four in the country at the time. It was a five-man team that would travel out. And throughout the year, my main rival 
At number one, there was Simon Park. Two was David Campion. Number three was Aidan Harrison. I was number four. Mark Allen was number five. Aidan, Mark and si- Aidan, Simon and David were a little bit better than Mark and I. So it was a bit of a toss-up between us who was going to take that, that kind of final spot. And I played Mark throughout the season. I'd beaten him five times leading into the Nationals and beaten him three love every time. So I'd been working with this guy, Joe Shaw, who'd been working us extremely hard physically. And we're talking about 15 to 20 sets of 400s in 75 seconds with a 90-second break. 2,500 corner ghosting, which is an hour and a half's worth of continual ghosting. 300 court sprints in 15 minutes. So the workload was immense. and Nothing I'd really been subjected to and wasn't privy to the importance of rest and and overtraining at that stage. So Joe had us training up to Thursday afternoon prior to the national championships up in Birmingham. And the draw had been fixed. So Mark Allen and I were due to play in the quarterfinals. I drive up to Birmingham on the Friday. I win my first two matches relatively easily because the opponents weren't of much use. And then I come up against Mark. And I just remember physically barely being able to get myself out of bed because... I'd just done so much work mentally. It was the pressures, the pressure of, I knew that the match was going to be live and it was going to de- determine who was going to go out to the world championships. And I just couldn't perform. I won the first game and then I just completely capitulated. I had nothing left to give. When I got tired very quickly, I had no spark. And that was the first time that I had actually witnessed burnout. But in, in a funny way, it was the biggest blessing in disguise that I'd ever had because I never made it to the team and the team went away in July instead of, I mean, I was absolutely devastated, mortified. It took me a couple of weeks to to pick myself up and dust myself off. But then an opportunity came up for me to travel out to New Zealand for two and a half months. And then on the way back from New Zealand, two weeks coming through the Far East playing in Hong Kong, Singapore and Malaysia. And I didn't understand the significance or at the time but I ended up traveling down to New Zealand. It was the best thing that I'd ever done because it, I got some, just being away from all of the, the, the news and all of the, the stuff going on back in the UK, I escaped from that. I got down to New Zealand. I got myself into some really good hard training. I, I accumulated some really helpful early ranking points. And from that point on, when I came back, it kind of really catapulted me up the ranks. I was 250 in the world when I left the UK. When I came back three months later, it taken me inside the top 125. So that was a massive jump. And then from that point on, I never looked back. So it was, you know, looking back, it was one of the hardest things for me to accept, but one of the best things that ever happened. If we rewind the clock to that, the weekend of that tournament where you it's determined that you aren't going to be part of the team. Yeah. And mind you, the team went on to win the European Championships, right? You don't need to remind me, but <laughs> well, no, it's still a bitter pill to swallow. Trust me. I know, I know, and that's why because I think there's an element where we don't always know how things are going to work out. So no. you're in that situation, and how are you feeling? How are you getting through the sort of day to day where that was a goal you've been working towards, you didn't achieve it, yeah. and it worked out in hindsight. But how are you progressing through that day to day or week to week? How are you feeling? These are stories that I often relay to some of the players that I've worked with because, as you know, it's not a kind of a continual 
spike to improvement and success. There's peaks and troughs along the way. And that's one of the stories that I've mentioned on many occasions to some of the kids because there might be times when the, the certain college that they've applied for isn't showing them any love or it's looking like that it's not going to happen or there may be a tournament that they're playing in which they feel is important for their um, access into some of these schools and certain situations like that where, and you can sit and I've, I've felt it with them, so I know exactly what they're going through. They come off court, they're in floods of tears and it's like their whole world has just caved in and it's the end of all, the be all and end all. And to try just give some of those experiences where at the time it's hard to see any rationale because you, your vision is so clouded, you, your thinking is just so muffled that you can't see through and beyond any of that. But as I've experienced myself, when you do look back, that these things happen for a reason sometimes and some good will always come of it in the long run. You may not be had to see that at the time, but I don't know if I can actually say this accurately or I'm not sure I would have achieved or did what I did on the world tour had that experience not happened because of that initial jump from, I mean, who knows? It's, it's you know, hindsight is a wonderful thing, but it could have had a different part. It could have shown me a different path. And I always look on that as a, it was a hard thing to go through at the time. But as I said, I'm, you know, I'm just messing. It was very tough to, to handle. But now I look back on that actually with a very positive outlook where that's, I'm actually ha I'm happy that I had to go through that. It sounds like you're able to offer that wisdom and that knowledge based on the experience you had. Yeah. But I'm curious, how during that time did you manage it yourself with that disappointment you were facing? I was pretty grumpy for a few weeks afterwards. Um, I'm a pretty sore loser, <laughs> I'm not going to lie. And I lost a little bit of motivation. I started to question... Why am I carrying on playing? This was such a, a goal that I'd set out for myself that I wasn't going to achieve and struggled to see beyond that at the time. But, you know, as I went through those kind of emotions and I then sat down with my coach, he, Joe Shaw, was very black or white and he just said to me, I'll be honest with you, the World Junior Championships is a minor it's a small piece of what you potentially can achieve if you want to make a name for yourself as a professional player. And I was lucky because I had a good, you know, you hear it a lot, but I did have a good team around me. My parents were extremely supportive. My Joe Shaw was very good with me at the time. And I just came through it. And then once I started to see some light at the end of the tunnel, I then just fully immersed myself into some harder training and started to see some results pretty quickly. And, and then I was off and running and I didn't really look back, but I'm, I'm glad that I had a team around me. I will say that much because I, I, I kind of got pulled through that more than managed to just come through it myself. I did have a lot of help around me. And it sounds like that's what you're providing with the clients you work with too. Well, if we were winding the clock and I was sort of highlighting your low light or your burnout, um, you've had many highlights in your career, but I think there's one that jumps out certainly in the history books and certainly <laughs> yeah. I think for you, but I'm curious to hear from you. Talk to me about the Commonwealth Games. Oh, 
without a shadow of a doubt, was the most amazing 16 days of my career. It squash had just been put into the Commonwealth Games uh, that that year. It was 1998. It was in Malaysia, and squash singles and squash doubles were going to become a part of those particular games. Now, 98, I was 26 years of age, and I was coming into the highlight of my career. I was ranked number four in the world at the time, so the, the timing was absolutely perfect. And I was already having quite a successful season coming into the games. So we all got the, the call up and I'll just never forget the amount of pride that I had. Being I played for numerous England men's squash teams in European championships and national championships and, and events. Uh, and to get called up for an event of that magnitude where you were going to be representing Great Britain was... Uh, beyond any of, of my wildest dreams. I remember when we went up to London to get all of our team kit, they opened up a train station where they were storing all of the um, kits for the players and you, you went in there. We were head to toe in Nike and Puma at the time. You could handpick your sizes and even before, you know, I went home before we'd even left for the games, I would be, I'd be parading around the living room or parading around the bedroom, putting on this kit and just, it just felt like, like a million dollars. It was insane. Um, flew out to Hong Kong. We had the Hong Kong Open leading into uh, the Commonwealth Games. So we were already acclimatised. And it was just one of those events where I'd had enough experience as a player on tour to know how I could be best prepared to, to be performing at my best. And everything was just so perfect. I had a really good event in Hong Kong, got through to the quarterfinals in in Hong Kong. We then had a four-day break where I just I did the, just the right amount of work. I'd learned from my experiences of burnout going through my career previously and turned up in Malaysia. And then just the high that you would get from sitting on the team bus with your, your fellow countrymen and what was so bizarre was seeing so many different body types from different sports. You had your six foot eight high jumpers. You had your five foot two bodybuilders. You're sitting there with some, you know, pretty kind of famous athletes. And you just, it was one of those where you sort of sat back and you just felt extremely proud that what you'd done as a player, all these ideas, all these thoughts going around in your head where all your hard work has paid off and you you belong in this kind of environment and I'll just never forget things even to this day opening ceremony we're sitting there in a we're waiting uh, all the countries are waiting in their different sections and you could hear the roar of the we're under the tunnels outside and then you could hear the, the roars of the stadium and then all of a sudden you know team Great Britain gets called out and you as you come out I mean god the, even now I can the <laughs> the hairs of my neck are standing up. You had 80,000 screaming fans just bearing down on, uh, you know, on, on the team and that 400-metre walk around the uh, lap around the, the stadium. There's just so many memories that are still so fresh in my mind. And then to obviously, I had a great singles event where I managed to win a bronze medal in the individuals. And then the big one, obviously, was the gold medal in the Commonwealth Games. And Mark and I, Mark Challen and my partner at the time, we often talk about it when we see each other. It was 
just the most surreal feeling of standing on the podium with your gold medal. And then all of a sudden, the St. George's Cross gets raises up and then the national anthem starts to get blurted out through the sound system. And it was a feeling that I'd never experienced before or since. And we'll probably never forget. It was cool. It was pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, few people on, on this planet have the distinction to have won a, a gold medal for their country. So yeah. that puts you in a, a unique class unto its own. Yeah, thank you. It was a, a precious moment, say the very least. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, <laughs> where are your medals? <laughs> I don't, she'd uh, kill me. They're literally, uh, I've got my place in the UK in bedside drawer. <laughs> It's disgusting, really. So they're in the safe place. They're, they're in the oh, safe exactly, place. yeah. It's ridiculous, really. They should have more of a prime possession. But uh, and, it, and still to this day, on occasion, I'll go home and I'll open them up and take a look and just to remind myself that that did actually happen. Yeah, yeah pinching. So, yeah. Well, I'm going to shift gears to another passion of yours, and this has to do with music. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. I was trying to think of, even how to frame this question because I love music. There's no doubt. And, you know, there's certain parts of art that I love too. But I, when I was, when I was thinking of you, I was like, I think there are people who just have a, a different level of understanding of music or a different, it just does something different. And so your level of music appreciation is just off the charts by your, your average person. Yeah. And so I just love to talk a little bit about what does music mean in your life for you? And what kind of music are you into? It was a, a massive part of my playing career. Um, I first really got into my my favorite topic or my favorite genre, should I say, is probably house music, deep house music. And I got into that when I was about 13 years of age. When I was at school in the UK, a very good friend of mine, Dwayne, his name was, it was a young black kid who always came into school in very cool, funky attire. He always had the coolest kind of printed uh, bomber jackets and the best sneakers. And he was an unbelievable dancer because he'd walk around with his Sony, with his Walkman and he would he'd be sort of dancing, you know, during playtime and break and that kind of stuff. And he was in my geography class at the time. And he let me listen to a song that he had on his Sony Walkman once. Uh, and just... It was quite a repetitive beat, but I just I instantly took a fancy to it. So he and I started to chat a little bit about it. And he said, you know, if you like this kind of stuff, there's a radio station called House FM. He said, it doesn't start until 10 p.m. He said, but if you listen to that, this is the frequency. He said, you'll hear some of this kind of stuff. So I'm, here I'm 13 years of age. My parents are sending me off to bed at 8, 8 o'clock, 8.30 at night. By the side of my bed, I've got this uh, little Toshiba kind of ghetto blaster, and I'd get my I'd get my little set of headphones, plug it into the socket, and I'd be listening to this radio show from ten o'clock at night till about one o'clock in the morning. Parents are oblivious to the whole thing, obviously, but that kickstarted my real passion for that particular style of music. So I ended up buying a couple of albums and a, a couple of cassettes because CDs weren't even around at that time. I'm really showing my age now. But then I started my, my career on, on tour. So I went out and after about a year and a half, I bumped into a fellow Englishman called Danny Meddings. 
he was a senior player, a more senior player at the time. And he, he'd heard the music I was listening to. And he said, oh, crikey. He said, we got a similar taste in music. Long story short, Danny and I hit it off. We started to room together and traveled quite a bit together. And he would always bring along some mixtapes of, of his own personal records. So I would video uh, record some, sorry, record some radio shows. He would bring his own collection and we would share cassettes at the time. And then about a year after meeting Danny, I decided to buy my own set of Technics 1210s, which are the DJ decks. And I'd come back from the event with a certain amount of prize money and I'd be off up to, there was a, a couple of record vinyl record stores up in London where I'd traipse up and I'd come back and ended up making all of my own mixtapes. And I did that for probably 10 of the 12 years I, uh, on tour because for me, it was an escape from the tour. When I came home, I, I did a little selection of records that I wanted to mix up. And when I, obviously there's a lot of dead time and downtime at these events. And I was quite happy to just sit there, you know, listening to my music. Probably got a collection of about a thousand vinyls now. And, and still to this day, when I go back, I, I'll have a good old mix up. Well, let's put a little bit of uh, color on this canvas. And I'm going to give you a scenario where let's go with the Commonwealth Games, right? So it's 1998. Yeah. And w I want to hear what's the, pl you know, the song or the artist that you would have and I'm going to give a, a few different scenarios here. Okay. Right. <laughs> okay. And and feel free to either put in what you were listening to at the time, or you now know a little bit better, and you'd be like, "Here's what I would have been listening to." Right. Okay. So you have a, a lot of leeway here. So, okay. what would you have been listening to to get you pumped up? There's a there's a record called Atmosphere EP by a guy called Kerry Chandler. Kerry Chandler's uh, is an American DJ, very deep underground house DJ. He was the resident DJ of a club called The Shelter back in the mid-90s. And he, he has a, a very unique sound. It's a very deep bass, bass line with some kind of higher-pitched tunes uh, at the opposite end. And that would be my go-to. Again, it, it's a very repetitive kind of a beat, but that would get me into a really fired-up kind of mentality and, and, and ready to go. Just Even now, if I listen to it, it just puts a smile on my face. <laughs> it's quite bizarre. What would be you're in the stadium with thousands of people, you you have full control. What's your walkout song? There's a song called uh, "Follow Me" by a guy called Alias. It was a very famous um, track on Strictly Rhythm Records. Also, all of the music I listened to was kind of '93 up to probably '98, '99, and this was one of the dance floor classics. It was a quite a melodic vocal, uh, a male vocal that it was played by pretty much every house DJ at some time on their set during that, that eight-year period, 10-year period or whatever it was. Now, what if you're having a tough period or a tough day? What would be the soundtrack? Like if this was a montage in a movie, what's, what's that uh, song? I'm a, big, I'm, a jazz, I'm a big jazz fan as well. I've got a couple of playlists called Jazz Divas. So it'll be some Ella Fitzgerald, Billie Holiday, a lady called Erica Badu, she's a bit more modern, John Coltrane, um, all of those, Benny King, all of those kind of, a little bit of blues, but a lot of, if I'm in that kind of a bit of a sultry kind of mood, I'll, I'll go for a jazz vibe. 
And so origi- the original jazz, or is it mixed with anything? I prefer original jazz. Yeah. The old school. What if you're, you know, long day on court and you just want to kind of calm down? Oh, that's a good one. If I was to go for a certain sound, if I just wanted to chill out, probably somebody like a Sade, that kind of a vibe, a bit more of a low-key, uh, easy listening. There's a band also called The Ferns, which is a Swedish group, just very chill. And I, I could easily have uh, that on in the background and that will just melt away all the stresses and strains of the day. And then what would you prescribe or put on for, you know, you want to, you're dreaming or you're thinking, what helps you contemplate the future? What would I drift off and listen to? I actually did, I've got the, I don't know if you know, the car map. There's a, one of these kind of um, meditation sort of apps. And there's a couple of things that I might listen to on there. If I really need to kind of decompress and switch off and chill out, there's a couple of playlists on there that I might listen to. Could be. Um, it's not Chinese style music. That's not the right vibe, but it's a very it's kind of stuff you'd hear in a spa with, you know, maybe the, the odd whale in the background or some uh, kind of air flutes or that kind of very, so not much vocal, but just really easy going, chill, down tempo, melodic stuff. I like it. And you, you have, it sounds like, or you shared that you've done some DJing of yourself. What was your coolest moment? Uh, you know, the location where, when uh, DJing? The coolest one was just for actually a, a private party. Uh, it was a very good friend of mine who, it was a bachelor party, but he invited along a group of about, probably about 300, 350 people. And he was actually doing the DJing himself. It was in a, a private club that he had hired out. Fantastic sound system. And we're about an hour into the night and I'd taken my record collection along because he wanted to use some of my vinyl to to play there. And as I said, about an hour in, he just put this particular track on. He called me over to the DJ's booth and just said, do you fancy taking over? I'm like, "Uh, I'm literally used to just DJing for myself and making up my own mixtapes. He just went, go for it. Knock, Knock yourself out. You know, just give it a try extremely nervous i've been djing for a good seven eight years but extremely nervous and had you know no idea what to expect and playing in front of a big crowd like that and got up onto the 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 decks and with the mixing the timing has to be pretty much which bang on the first one or two mixes i remember were a little bit ropey because i was so nervous and then eventually I, i dropped a a club classic at the time and the whole crowd just went crazy and from that point on, the guy's party it was ended up having to beg me to get off the decks because I just I was in fully immersed and I was in love with the, the rush of playing for an audience. And uh, that was my most memorable time. That was pretty cool. That must be a pretty uh, cool feeling. It was, it was. It gives you a bit of an insight as to what, well, you know, not in the same uh, magnitude, but what these big DJs have to go through. Yeah. The rush of the crowd and the, the you know. Feeding off of that energy, right? Exactly. Well, the, the last question I'll ask you, and you can go either way, some latitude. I used to just ask, are there any books you'd recommend? But given this is a podcast and I love podcasts myself, yeah. are there books or podcasts you'd recommend that you've really enjoyed yourself? Yeah, there's a podcast called The Breakdown. Try The Breakdown sometime. <laughs> um, you just listened to it. 
are there any that I would listen to? There well, what are, about a book? Is there any? A book, I'm actually in the process of reading a couple of books at the moment. Uh, there's one called The Inner Game of Golf by a guy called Timothy Galway. He was a former tennis player who, again, a lot of the books that I read will be psychology-driven. So um, I think you can. there are so many life lessons that you can learn through some of these. They're not, it's not necessarily an instructional uh, golf book for how to hit the ball better, but it's more about the inner workings of the mind and the brain and how to get into a certain mindset given the, the circumstances and the, the situations that you're in. And those kind of books have always been of interest to me. But in actual fact, the book that I'm reading right now, it's I'm about halfway through and it's probably the best sports psychology book that I've read. So I would, I would definitely include that one in there. And what was that called again? The Inner Game of Golf. I think he's also got a book out called The Inner Game of Tennis. It's by a guy called W. Dot Timothy Galloway. So, give and then podcasts. Do you enjoy listening to podcasts? I don't listen to many podcasts. There is a guy that I've I follow him on Instagram, and his podcasts are called Huberman Lab, which I think he's a graduate of Stanford Medical School, or maybe it's Harvard Medical School. I can't remember, but he has very interesting guests on. Again, it's a lot of a lot of his neuroscience and like the inner workings of the, the brain and. The, how the chemicals are released under certain situations and how to deal, how to cope with certain things like uh, anxiety, you know, stress, addiction. There's a whole array of different topics and they're about an hour long and they're extremely um, informative and just starting to enjoy some of the early, early runnings of those. And they're, they're pretty cool. Great. All right. Well, I'm uh, so glad we got this this opportunity to kind of uh, take. I've been wanting to do this for a while, especially since we started collaborating more together and, and actually getting time to turn the spotlight on you. So thank you for uh, sharing your wealth here. No, it's been a pleasure. Uh, it's been quite interesting reflecting on some of those memories and, and things from previous years. It's not often you'd get the chance to do it, but it's been an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you for your time. And there's obviously more of you on Squash Radio with the breakdown, but it's great to get this little slice of PJ. Well, thank you so much for your time today and for joining us on Squash Radio. We hope you enjoyed this latest episode. But before you leave, we just have one quick last message. As you know, Squash Radio wants to help tell some of the best stories from Squash World. But in order to do that, we want and welcome your help. Do you know a person or a story that involves squash that is interesting, funny, moved you, you care about, reflects your passion for the sport? Well, share it with us and let's try and get it out there on the air. You can email me at squashradio at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. Again, thanks for your time and well, until next time, be well and have fun.